Before we get started, I want to thank whoever the puller of weeds was last week. I don't know who did it, uh, but thank you, whoever it was that took the time to come down and pull. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, good job. It looks really good. Uh, while we're talking about ministry, we, we mentioned about the ministry roster, and we do need lots of help. We were figuring this week on what, we're, what we need now, what we need moving forward. And it's about 130 positions moving forward. And you'd be surprised how many people are already contributing in ministry if we tallied all of that up. It's, it's a pretty high number already. Uh, so we just want to thank you who are serving, and we also want to uh, ask you to really take that seriously. There's a roster right there uh, underneath that television. There's ones by the door. Just check it out. Pray about it. See where God might lead you as we look forward to the future. Here's one I didn't put on there, and uh, I don't know how to put it on there yet. Uh, because it's almost like, I would put it this way, uh, it's, it's a nitpicker ministry. Now, here's what I, I know that sounds terrible. I'm pretty sure nitpicker is like a lice reference. I'm pretty sure that's where that came from, right? The nits picking. Anyway, we need to come up with a better name for that ministry for sure. Uh, but we are going to need people like that, and it sounds really negative, in a positive way, who are detail-oriented, who see things that other people don't see. And uh, here's why. You know, we, we've been working through something it's like a ministry audit uh, that helps us uh, evaluate and see some of the, the details in ministry that sometimes get missed. You, you come to a church for a long time, and you know there's that water stain right there, and some of you... Um, you don't see it anymore because you, you come here and it's always there, whatever. And other people are like, that water stain is really bothering me. So the, those who have kind of that eye for details, I'll give you an example. When we have a, a lobby, that's what's being built right now, uh, that section, uh, when we have that, here's one example, like a checklist of things to look for in our nitpicker ministry. Uh, are there current attractive handouts and brochures to give information about your church that would be helpful to guess? And are they... Are they current? Are they where they need to be? Are there any missing? You know, a lot of people, you walk in, you don't even know that we have brochures back there. Uh, but that's important for a new guest to be able to find the information that they need. Are the bulletin boards current? Are they, do they reflect current ministries? And we do have someone that's uh, doing that digital signage in the back, you know, and, and we don't want that to have ministries or uh, events on it for three months ago. Those kind of things need to be current. Uh, is the, the coat closet, or the uh, they call it here the usher closet, whatever you would have, uh, like our connection corner, is it orderly, or is it in disarray? Are there things there that shouldn't be there? Uh, this is one that, uh, that churches need to pay attention to. Uh, we try to do a good job with this, but junk. Is there just junk laying around? Uh, because junk laying around communicates that we don't really uh, pay attention to that stuff and don't care about the details, and it, it's, it creates kind of a bad vibe for, or in first impression for new, new guests. Anyway, that's just a couple examples. There's other ones, and there's that, that type of ministry that uh, you might not have thought of. So if you've got the gift of criticism, no, that's not the right thing either. Uh, we'll, we'll come up with a good name. There's lots of ministries. There's ministries for everyone, so check that out. I want to welcome you back to our study of this letter from the Apostle Paul, from Silas, from Timothy, to the believers in Thessalonica. I want to ask you how many of you 
accepted the big challenge from last week, which was to read through the entire letter in one sitting, a little public accountability. How many of you did it? All right, good job. Proud of you. Um, I know I, I told you last week that there was 31,103 verses, and it's not that bad, right? I don't know if you took time to count it. There's 89. You can do 89 verses. So if you didn't do it, if you didn't do it last week, uh, it's 89. It's under 100 verses. You can get through that in one sitting. It's not going to be that, that hard to do. I can say this. Uh, it's not going to take us 89 weeks to get through this letter, because today, I know last week I only did one verse, but today I'm going to do two verses, <laughs> twice as many. So I, I figure we should be done by, what's 2022 in April? Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll work through it. Anyway, if you would join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, I am going to just get through two verses today. But these verses, I think, are super important and very, very practical to our lives as followers of Christ. And so I, I think this is going to be really uh, a really important sermon for us. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. If you're following along on our digital notes, on our, on our website, on our digital bulletin, uh, all the verses that you need are, are right there. Here we go. Verse 2. We always thank God for all of you. Who are we talking about? This is Paul, Silas, Timothy, and they are thanking God for who? The believers in this city of Thessalonica. We thank God for all of you, and we pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. I wanted to read that verse, those two verses again out of the NIV. I don't know what version you might have in your lap this morning, but the, the translation from the original language into English is a little bit different depending on the, the translation you have in your lap. But I, I, I like some of the phrases that they use in the NIV as far as the translation of words. Let me read it to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. That's the same. We continue to remember before our God and Father your, here's, here's a little different wording, your work produced by faith, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a New American standard, they, uh, they translate it work of faith labor of love, a little bit different on that last phrase, a steadfastness of hope. If you have a New King James, uh, they translate that as a patience, a patience of hope. And we're going to dig down on those words this morning, and uh, we're going to spend a little bit more time just uh, understanding what those words mean, those phrases, how they apply to our everyday lives. But before we do that, I want you to remember the context in which this letter was written. Paul and his ministry partners were only in Thessalonica for a few weeks, maybe a month or so. It wasn't very long, but they fell in love with these people. And uh, they had to leave much earlier than they wanted to leave because there was this mob that kicked up a riot, and so they had to move on to, to the next city. But uh, Paul genuinely loved them, and you can see in this letter that he really missed them. 
and wanted to see them again. And that's something that I can relate to as a pastor. You know, we are what, a little bit more than a year out since uh, COVID uh, really created you know, separation in, in physical relationship, and that affected you know, our church family. Um, you know, it's, and we're starting to see that you know, coming back, and that's been refreshing, but it's been hard. Um, I guess I, I wanted to take the opportunity to just say to those on the other side of the camera that we, that we miss you and, and we love you and it's been hard to be apart and we can't wait to see you. We can't wait to see you again. You know, just like this, this pandemic hasn't gone away as fast as we want. It hasn't. It's still lingering and it's still causing problems. Um, and we want it to be done now. Just like we want this to be done and over with, the persecution against the believers in Thessalonica, it didn't, it didn't end when Paul and his team left. In fact, it got worse. It got, it got worse to the point where there were people in that church that died, that they were killed for their faith. So It was really bad in that city for these believers. And uh, Paul got to the point where he was so concerned about them that he sent Timothy back just to see how they were doing, his main concern was, are these people still following Jesus? And uh, he, he sent Timothy back, and he was so encouraged, he was so refreshed with Timothy's report. Uh, as, Timothy, or as Timothy comes back, gives them the report, Paul and his, his ministry partners, they're praying for these believers every day. And they were so thankful to find out that despite all the hardship that they had endured, they were still living Jesus-centered lives. They were still a Jesus-centered church. And that really refreshed Paul's heart. You might be new to Grace Fellowship Church, maybe in person or maybe watching online, but it's not going to take you long to figure out what really matters to us, what drives us as a church. We want to be a church that helps people live a Jesus-centered life. We want people to meet Jesus. We want to teach people how to follow Jesus and how to share Jesus with others. And that matters to us, and it mattered to the church in Thessalonica to, to be that kind of church that, that really puts Jesus at the center. And what I love about verse 3 is I think it's a wonderful description of what that actually looks like. We say it, and sometimes I think maybe people wonder, okay, I want that. I want to live a Jesus-centered life, but I don't really know how. I don't know what that looks like. And I think verse 3 describes it and gives us some real practical ways that you and I can live that out on an everyday basis. You know, in the military, um, our military, they're trained to live a life of honor. They're trained to live a life of courage, a life of integrity. And those, all of those words that you hear uh, connected to military training, those words have meaning. Right? They're not just words they put on a banner. Those words have meaning. And uh, those words have practical application in the barracks as well as on the battlefield. And a person who wants to live a Jesus-centered life is being trained by the Word of God to, to live a life of faith and hope and love. And all of those words have actual meaning behind them. They have practical application that is given to us in the Word of God. And they, they apply in our family lives. They apply... Uh, where, you, where you work, where you go to school, the sports team that you're on in your community. They apply in the things that we do for, for fun, the way that we deal with conflict. It's all of life. 
that faith and hope and love uh, play a part in uh, living a Jesus-centered life. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to break those three words down to a very practical level. I think it's going to be a great opportunity for each one of us, if you are a follower of Christ, to take time to evaluate where you're at right now with each one of those. Not uh, necessarily where you want other people to think you are. Where, where are you with faith, hope, and love right now uh, in, your, in your everyday life? And I also think it's going to give us an opportunity for those who maybe are far from God, uh, but maybe there's something going on in your life right now where you want that to change. There's something happening, and you realize, yes, I'm far from God, but I don't want to be anymore, and I'm, I, I want to know who this Jesus is. I want to know more about what it means to have a relationship with Him. Um, I, I think what we're going to talk about today is going to demonstrate uh, how transformative a life can be when we are connected to Jesus, when we're living a life of faith, hope, and love as a follower of Christ. I think it's going to be really, really attractive uh, to those of you who maybe uh, have been chasing after something different in your lives. So that's what my prayer is today. So let's take a look at the first phrase as we look at faith, hope, and love. The first phrase is work produced by faith. Work produced by faith. When, when you think about the word faith, probably the first thing that pops into your mind is the word believe. What I believe to be true, even when I can't see it, we would define that as, as faith. And certainly I think that's, that's true. I think that's biblically true. I think that's even in the language, that is a true statement. But here, it's interesting that Paul connects faith to work. And in the original Greek language, Paul uses a specific word that's been translated into English into the word work. But the word that he uses is a word for vocation. It's a word for your job. Paul was very thankful that these believers, they viewed their faith as their vocation. They viewed their faith as their job. They were living like following Jesus was their primary job, and whatever their secondary job was, whatever they made money doing, they viewed that as secondary. Following Jesus, a life of faith, that's my primary job. And whatever it is that I make money doing, that's, that's my secondary job. That's how they viewed life. And I want, just, I want us to think about uh, what that might look like for us. Maybe that would... Maybe that would be a change in perspective. Maybe that would be a change for you in, in your life. Imagine if we lived life like our primary job was to be a spouse that put Jesus first in our lives. Well, that would mean for us that we would intentionally work to be a husband, to be a wife that the Word of God calls us to be. In practical terms, that would mean, from what the Scripture teaches, that I, I you, if you're a husband, that, that we would be a husband that loves our wives, that loves our wife with a sacrificial love. That's how the Bible describes the responsibility of a husband, with this high level of sacrificial love for your wife. It would mean, as, as a wife, that you would treat your husband with a high degree of of respect, of unconditional respect. 
This is how the Bible, that's one example of of what the Word of God describes as a godly wife or a godly husband. And if Jesus is in the center of our lives, that's what we would work towards being as a spouse. Imagine if we lived our life like our primary job as a parent was to be a parent who put Jesus first in our lives. It would mean that we would intentionally work to be the parent that God calls us to be. As we read through the Word of God, we see that uh, the Word of God encourages, challenges us as parents to be a, a parent, a mom, a dad who loves our children unconditionally, and at the same time disciplines our children consistently in line with what God expects, the standards of God's Word that we would set a good example of what it actually looks like to follow Jesus, that we would set a good example to our children, uh, even even when we fall short, and we all do. Every parent falls short. Every parent uh, has failures as a parent. Uh, But when that happens, to, to be honest about that with our children and to admit that we've fallen short, and that shows humility. That shows... Uh, that shows repentance and what repentance actually looks like. We can teach that to our children as we're trying our best to follow the Word of God and to follow Jesus and put Him in the center of our lives. It's like, this is your job. Your job as a parent is to live a life of faith. Imagine if we lived like our primary job in life was truly to put Jesus in the center of our work life that we put Jesus in the center of uh, our, our school experience, uh, on your sports team, in your community. It would mean that we would intentionally work to be a consistent follower of Christ, that we would work at patterning our lives, our attitudes, our words, our responses after Jesus, that we would pursue the things in life that matter to Him, that His priorities would be our priorities in every one of those areas of our lives. It would mean that our relationship with Jesus becomes our identity, that it's not uh, this optional activity for the weekend, that this is who we are. This is my job to follow Jesus. How would that change the way that we viewed even our secondary job? Now, we we have to work, right? That's important. Uh, The money that our our secondary jobs provide is important. Even if you are a student, you know, that that work that you do in school, that academic work is really important. It's not that we're diminishing uh, the importance of that. What we're saying, I think what Paul is describing and, and what he's so impressed with these, uh, these believers in Thessalonica, is they view everything that, that their primary job is their faith and that it has implications into all these other things that are secondary, like their jobs that they get, monies, that they get money for. And, and, and that primary faith, that job, this is my job, impacts my values. It impacts my priorities um, in all of these other things. This is my job to live a life of faith. Here's the second phrase that's really, really good. This uh, phrase, labor prompted by love. Labor prompted by love. When you think about the word love, the first thing that probably comes to mind is a feeling. It's an emotion. 
But the word that Paul uses here in verse 3, the original word uh, in the Greek, it means a decision. It's not, it's not a, an emotion. It's not a feeling-based word that he uses. It's a decision to demonstrate love, in fact, regardless of emotion, regardless of how we, how we feel. And that type of love is an intentional action that puts the needs of someone else before our own needs. And that kind of love can be really hard to find. I mean, I, I don't know if you've, at this point, just turned off the news and had enough of it. And I, I understand that if you've come to that point. Uh, but it doesn't take long to look around the world and say, is there any of that kind of love left in the world? Uh, it's really getting harder and harder to find that type of love. Uh, and I think that's why Paul connects this word, love, to the word labor. The word that he chose there, labor, you think work, labor, same word. It's a different word. The word labor means to toil. It means to have a hard, uh, a type of work that is hard, that it produces fatigue when you do it, that it produces exhaustion when you do it. You know, think uh, of digging a ditch or stacking wood. That's, uh, that's hard work. It produces fatigue and exhaustion. And this is, this is how he connects this type of love to that type of labor. Sometimes it's exhausting. Sometimes it's really, really hard work to love people that way. And maybe it's because uh, sometimes we labor in love and we don't get paid back what we want to get paid back. You know, you, you, you labor at love, you work at love, you love someone unconditionally, and, and, um, and you kind of expect that people would appreciate that, and it doesn't always happen. Sometimes we get paid back with indifference. They don't give a rip. Sometimes we get paid back with ingratitude, or sometimes we might even get paid back with hostility, and that can be, that can be hard. I think that's why the words of Jesus are so hard to hear, even harder sometimes to live in Matthew chapter 5. If you look on the screen, I think I have it on there for you. Love your enemies, Jesus said. Love your enemies. That's a choice. It's not a feeling. It's a decision to demonstrate love. Bless those who curse you. That can be really hard. I mean, think of that in real terms. Someone has cursed you in whatever form they chose to do that in, and you're to return blessing? Do good to those who hate you? Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you? That you may become sons of your Father in heaven, meaning that you are following the pattern of God. A Jesus-centered life is defined by love that's not generated by good feelings. It doesn't feel good. When someone persecutes you, when they flip you off, when they say terrible things to you, when maybe it's not even hostility, maybe it's just this, this cold indifference towards you. And it doesn't produce good feelings when people mistreat us or reject us or hurt us. You know, even people, though, that are far from God, they can be nice to people who are nice to them. That's not really hard to do. This labor of love is this intentional decision about our behavior. It's an intentional decision about restraining our words. And that can sometimes be hard to do. Sometimes love, sometimes love is just tough. 
You think about some uh, situations in our lives, you know, confrontation can be tough, um, holding other people accountable. Even honesty sometimes, just being honest with someone can, can sometimes be really unpleasant. There's two types of people, though, when it comes to those unpleasant circumstances, right? You've got people that uh, they kind of like confrontation. There are people that, I wouldn't maybe say they thrive on it, but there are people that kind of like confrontation in the sense where they like to tell you what they think. And so they don't hesitate. It's just like both barrels, here's what I think, deal with it, right? And there are people like that. That's not me. Uh, I don't like confrontation. Uh, but I, if I genuinely love someone and they are trending away from God in their life choices, then I've got to figure it out. I've got to figure out a way to have that hard conversation, and uh, it's because I love them, right? So two things. I don't know who you are. You've got to kind of self-evaluate whether you're the kind of person that doesn't like confrontation and you avoid it at all costs, if you're the kind of person that likes to get in the mix and you're going to know what I think. If, uh, if you're the kind of person that, that is, uh, doesn't like confrontation and you avoid it and you say, listen, it's, just, it's easier to keep my mouth shut, they'll figure it out eventually. You know, the, their life choices will come back to bite them at some point. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, but if you truly love this person, yeah, it's easier. It's more comfortable to not say anything. But love is interested in what's best for that other person that you care about. We've got to figure it out. We've got we to figure out how to have the courage to have those conversations. But if you're on the other side of that, here's my caution uh, to those who, who might be a little bit more aggressive in your personality or just uh, kind of bluntly honest and don't maybe speak sometimes before you even think. If that's you... I would just caution you, challenge you to make sure you always check your motive. Uh, make sure you check your motive because uh, if your motive in saying something is this is going to make me feel better, if your motive in saying something is uh, I think they need to know what I think, if that's the motive, that's, that's not the right reason to say something. The motive needs to be I care about this person, I love this person, and uh, I want what's best for them. Um, so just we need to, on both sides of that, whatever your personality is, uh, to be, be cautious of that. There's something I think that affects both of us when it comes to this labor of love. If you, if you ever get to the place where you're tired of giving and giving and giving and giving, and it just doesn't seem like you're getting anything in return, here's some good news. That means that you are doing the labor of love that you're called to do. Because it's not always going to be easy. Sometimes loving others is demanding and sometimes it is exhausting. But it's also, that kind of love is the most healing. It is the most redeeming. It is the most powerful force in the world. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 13. This also is on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians 13, he describes love as patient. I know you hear this at weddings, like every wedding you go to. But listen with a fresh ear to what Paul says. Love's patient. And love is kind, it does not envy, it, it does not boast, it's not proud. Do those feel like uh, emotion-based or emotion-driven type things? No, those are decision-based things when it comes to love. 
It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Those are decision-based, intentional choices that we make to demonstrate love when it's hard. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It it always hopes. It always perseveres. Uh, Love never fails. I love the end of that section where Paul breaks it down. He says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Those are the three things we're talking about. And he says the greatest of all of those is love. The most powerful force of all of those is love. Labor of love. Here's the third one. The third one is endurance inspired by hope. Endurance inspired by hope. When you hear the word hope, sometimes we think of wishful thinking. I hope that my team wins. I I hope that my shorts from last summer still fit. I hope that my pastor starts to fall in love with cats. And that's wishful thinking. That one's That one's probably not going to happen, but you can hope it. You can wish it. Hope from a biblical perspective is not about wishful thinking. That's not how it's defined from a biblical perspective. Hope from a biblical perspective is a confident assurance of what we know to be true, even when we can't see it yet, even when we aren't yet experiencing it. The writer of Hebrews connects the words faith and hope together in verse 1 of chapter 11. You might be familiar with this verse, that faith is being sure of what we hope for. Faith and hope are connected. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain, this confident assurance of what we cannot see, that we don't see it now, we don't experiencing it right now, but it's what we believe to be uh, a promise of God or what we believe to be what God is going to do in the future because He's promised it. That's what faith is. It's faith and hope connected, this confident assurance. And I think a lot of people today are searching for hope. I really believe that. There's so much, there's so much despair in the world. And despair is such a powerful emotion. I think more and more people are experiencing it, and they're looking for hope. I mean, you can make a pretty long list of things that create despair in people's lives. Maybe it's a loss of a job, or it's a sickness, or it's, uh, it's death, or maybe a broken relationship. I mean, we could, we could spend quite a while making that list, but we're, we're talking about hope, right? We want to we wanna find hope. So where do we find hope? I think some people look for hope by ignoring reality. Like that's where they're, they think they're going to find hope by ignoring reality. Like I, I'm just going to I'm going to live my my own little bubble, and I'm going to live in the bliss of my ignorance. I think there's some people that look for hope through a diversion or distraction or even pleasure. In their minds, I'm just going to stay busy. I'm going to do some fun stuff. I'm going to keep my mind distracted. I'm going to keep my my heart distracted with these other things so that I don't have to think about the tough stuff in life, so that I don't have to deal with that emotionally. Uh, I'm just going to keep busy. I think they look for some type of hope in that, that mindset. I think some people look for hope in financial security. I'm going to get as many hours as I possibly can so that I've got this big cushion of money or that I've got this, I've got a lot of money put into the investments or whatever it is, 
so that uh, I don't have to worry. There's going to come a point when I don't have to worry about my needs. I don't have to worry about my wants. I've got this financial security. I'm putting my hope in that. The problem with trying to find hope in places like that is that they, they can't deliver, not long term, and not a guarantee. There's always going to be something that can break through and ruin the illusion of hope that these things often promise us. You know, eventually, life is going to touch us. We can put our head in the sand and pretend that it won't or ignore it or whatever, but it, uh, life will touch us, even inside our bubble. That's just the way life is. Pleasure, it, it, distraction, those things only last a little while. They're not long-term. Death and disease do not care how wealthy we are. They don't care what's in our bank account. Touch anyone. The only source of true hope is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Jesus didn't come back from the dead after His crucifixion, if the resurrection is alive, then our, our faith is, is a useless exercise. And he goes on to say this, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. But then he finishes that, uh, that paragraph, that uh, verse 20, he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means for us that death has no victory and that the hardships that all of us experience in life, they are temporary. That's what it means for us as followers of Jesus. It is our hope in Jesus and what He did for us on the cross. It is, it is our hope in the power of the resurrection that allows for us to step back from our sickness, allows us to step back from our loss and the pain of our loss or, or the struggles that we experience, the chaos around us, or even the experience of our own death as, as maybe that becomes a, a known reality that we are moving towards. We're able to step back and see the bigger picture of eternity, that hope, in Jesus Christ is what puts every other moment in our lives into its proper perspective. I think that's why Paul connects the word hope to the word endurance, or you might have the word patience. The word that Paul uses there for endurance or patience is a unique word. You don't see it very often. It's not used very often in Scripture. It's a very specific word. And it doesn't just mean enduring a problem or enduring a crisis in the sense where you might say to someone, you know what, suck it up, buttercup, you just got to push through. Well, that's an endurance, right? That, that is a type of endurance, but that's not the meaning of this word. The word that Paul uses, yes, it is a steadfastness to push through and endure and hang in there when life gets hard. It is that but it is also this idea of looking for an opportunity that God is providing 
in that crisis or in the context of that struggle or that painful experience in your life. To look around, what does God want to do in this? And the answer to that question uh, could, could be a wide variety of things. And it's not just maybe even one thing. It could be a wide variety of, uh, of multiple things that God wants to do in that difficult experience in your life. Maybe, maybe this is an opportunity for your heart to be changed. And this is the way that God's going to change your heart. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to be able to be used by God to change the heart of someone else. Maybe God's using this for a reason to create positive change around you, and He's using your experience as a way to do that. Maybe it's so that your faith can be strengthened. Maybe so that your experience can strengthen someone else and their faith. Maybe it's so that your priorities and your values are reoriented. Maybe Maybe God is going to take this opportunity uh, to to, uh, have you honestly look at what has been important in your life, and now you're looking and saying, I don't know why I put so much value and importance on this. It doesn't matter. These are the things, these are the people in my life that truly matter, and I've missed it. Those are the kind of things that sometimes we don't, it's not even on our radar, it's not even on our thought process until we go through difficult experiences. And so maybe that's what God wants to do in those seasons of your life. You may have heard people say this phrase, never let a crisis go to waste. I've heard that phrase. And I think what people mean by that in a negative sense, they, they mean let's, let's take the opportunity to manipulate the situation to get what we want. It's not necessarily a positive phrase. But I want you to think about the seasons of life that are really hard, whether they're crisis level or they're just super challenging. I do want you to think, I think Paul is encouraging us to think of them in terms of what is the opportunity here? What is the opportunity that God wants to do in this season of our lives? Yeah, it's a dark place. It is a dark season of life, and it's super hard. But there's hope in it. There's hope in that we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ that that gives us hope beyond this life and that proves to us that He has power and dominion over all things, right? That gives us hope. And that type of hope gives us endurance, not just to hang in there and push through the pain, but to actually look for what God wants to do in that season of life. So when we ask the question, what does a Jesus-centered life look like? What does a Jesus-centered church look like? I think these three phrases really help us define that better and and give us some practical insights defined by seeing faith as our job. It's my job to live a life of faith. Do your job. You ever hear someone say that? Do, just do your job. It's defined by demonstrating love even when it is hard, even when we don't feel like it. And it's having such a strong hope in Jesus Christ that, that we are willing to endure hardship And along the way, look for the opportunities that God wants to do in those seasons of life. So here's the big challenge. The big challenge this week is this. I want to challenge you to just pick one of those. If you want to pick all three, you know, you're you're Johnny uh, Try Hard, that's fine. You can go for all three. But just pick one. Would you just pick one of those this week that, uh, that you look at and you're like, I want to grow in this one. 
And then ask God this week, every day, just ask God, God, uh, I'm asking that you would grow in me a Jesus-centered faith this week, that you would grow that more in me, that you would grow in me a Jesus-centered love, a Jesus-centered hope. And pray about that every day this week, that God would do something in your life that would grow that, that part of, of, your, of your faith. If you would say that you are far from God, if that's where you're at this morning and you're like, I don't want to be far from God anymore. And maybe what we've talked about this morning, this life of faith and love and hope, it sounds a whole lot better than, than what you're living right now. If you're ready for a change of heart, if you're ready for a change in your life, it's only going to be found in Jesus. And we want to be able to help you meet Jesus. So uh, a couple ways that we can help you with that, you can come talk to me personally, you can contact us uh, on, through email, and we can set something up. Uh, right now, you can go uh, on our website right in this very moment. Get your phone out and go to the website, gracefellowship.online. Right on the front page, there's a button there that says, I'm ready. You click that, and it'll give you the, a very understandable ex explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, give you some next steps to follow through with. We want to help you in any way that we can.